Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein, and we have a special Memorial Day treat, a special edition with baseball on my mind always, but on all of our collective minds this Memorial Day weekend. We're doing some politics and baseball, some political fastballs, if you will, with two of the greatest pitchers and greatest baseball minds ever. One known primarily for his time with the New York Yankees, the other for his time with the Red Sox. A little balance here on the podcast. David Cohn, the former Yankees great, and Louis Tiant, the former Red Sox great. Both of these men have written really interesting new books uh, about their lives in the game, telling their stories in a very compelling way. And it, it's an era in in baseball where politics is front and center and an era in politics where sports is front and center. So we thought it was an apt time to check in with these two men. And we begin our conversation now with David Cohn, uh, the five-time World Series champion, five-time uh, All-Star, uh, Yankees, Mets, Royals, Blue Jays, Red Sox. Did I miss any? I think I got most of the some, teams. Some of those were twice, yes. <laughs> some of those more than, more than once. Uh, and the author of a brand new book, Full Count, The Education of a Pitcher, which he's written uh, along with Jack Curry of the Yes Network and formerly of the New York Times. Mr. Cohen, welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Rick. Uh, well, I want to start with um, an anecdote you tell in this book that I never heard before about what you called your short-lived journalism career, where you decided or you, you'd agreed to to write some columns for a New York tabloid of kind of the insider's uh, view of baseball during a playoff series, and you, you found that come back to bite you. Boy, I really did. I mean, pre-internet days, obviously, but it, that article got over the wire pretty quickly to, to Los Angeles, so it was... Uh, before game two of the 1988 uh, League Championship Series, and I had a storybook year with the Mets. I was 20-3, and three, and then it was going to be my first playoff start against the Dodgers. And, you know, I, I agreed to do a ghost-written column with Bob Clappish, and I said some things that were disparaging about the Dodger players. Oral Hershiser, I said I thought he was a lucky pitcher, and then Jay Howell was their closer. And I said he reminded me of a high school pitcher because he threw so many curveballs, and I didn't know that was going to be in the article. I didn't see the final copy. I got the byline. It, it, people thought that I actually wrote that article. I didn't. If I would have seen it, I wouldn't have let it go through. And, but it, it did, and I did say those things. And when I walked out to pitch that game, uh, I clearly choked. I was so nervous and impacted by the, the everything surrounding that article. There were 100 copies of that newspaper article on the Dodgers' dugout wall. And when I walked out to pitch, the entire Dodger, Dodger team – was on the top step screaming at me as if I was villain number one and, and my legs were heavy. And I wanted to, to just describe that in the book and kind of the art of the choke. I mean, I clearly choked. I couldn't even reach home plate with some of my pitches to begin that game. And I was knocked out of that game and uh, ended up losing that particular game. I'm curious what that what that teaches you in the lessons. Now, you're a journalist again. You're covering covering Yankees games, and you've got to offer your often frank analysis of, of, of a team and a franchise you're pretty close to about what you've learned about how the media environment impacts the guys on the field, particularly in this age, which is different, as you point out. You were probably lucky in the 80s with the Mets that they didn't have iPhones and, and social media. Absolutely. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I feel for the current players nowadays and – you know, uh, I I think you see them feel like they're such a target that they're afraid even to go out for dinner in restaurants on the road or here in New York. And I see a lot of guys that talk about playing video games. They go back to their hotel room and play Fortnite or some sort of video game. So I kind of feel badly for these guys that, that they feel in such a defensive position that they're they're constantly fending off bad PR or worried about it. And, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, Adam Stein, uh, uh, Adam Silver, actually, with the NBA, talked about the NBA players yeah. and, and depression because of these issues. So it's it's definitely very real for the current players. 
I want to ask you about something you mentioned in the book as well about your time as a labor rep, because it's been 25 years now since the World Series got wiped out, and it's been a a quarter century of labor peace relative to where things had been for the quarter century before that. Uh, Although there's some issues coming down the pike potentially now, you talk about how you feel like you were retaliated against, at least at least indirectly, because of your role as a union rep. Do you get the same kind of sense in the in the labor player dynamic? And is it impacted by the fact that so many players these days have other other outlets to to amplify their voices? That they can just go on Twitter and sound off on a, a contract they think is unfair. Yeah, that's a great point. You you take matters into your own hands and, and bypass the media altogether nowadays. Uh you know, in the 1994, it, it, it was ground zero for for us. Uh, the, the the owners were trying to break the union, and we went on strike in August of 1994, and hoping that that was our best leverage to to get to to the bargaining table and get good faith negotiations. But that wasn't the plan. Uh, the owners uh, ended up canceling the World Series. I spent six months in Washington lobbying on behalf of the Players Association against the antitrust exemption that the Major League Baseball player, our Major League owners, still. Still to this day, uh, enjoy and but we actually got a partial repeal of that of that antitrust exemption. It's kind of a lost fact, uh, yeah, in, uh, that a lot of people don't know about. But it's just with regards to labor issues, not with regards to uh, the minor leagues. But I think that was a that was a big deal, and I worked really hard on on that issue, and was really proud that I was part of the executive subcommittee that that got a partial repeal of the antitrust exemption. So I want to ask you about something about clubhouse dynamics, because we saw, I think, a pretty extraordinary scene uh, earlier this month. The Red Sox go to the White House to celebrate their world championship. They're invited by by President Trump. And it's essentially the white Red Sox who show up. There were a number of Latino players and African-American players, including the manager who is Puerto Rican, who say, you know, I just can't support where this president stands politically or I think it's problematic in some ways. And even David Price underlines that point as the the star pitcher, the, the the star of the World Series, saying it really was primarily the white Red Sox that go. Were you surprised by that? And what what are the kind of internal clubhouse political dynamics that might be behind something like that? Well, it's really true. I mean, it, it's different, obviously, nowadays. Um, culturally speaking, uh, the, there's more representation of especially Latin American ballplayers, Puerto Rican players. Uh, Alex Cora is now a manager, right. you know, and, and so that that – is a whole different dynamic. Uh, you know, we went to the White House with the Yankees. It was Bill Clinton was there, and we had some Republicans on our team that, that said similar things, but they never got to the point where we were, there was a boycott. You know, there weren't that that uh, that extreme of, of issues or or dialogue going on back then. So, I feel for these guys nowadays to make that decision. If I was in the clubhouse with the Red Sox, I would probably fight for unity because we have to live together. Right. It's one day you go to the White House and you're making a statement and if it's a divisive issue, I my vote would be for my teammates and if my manager says he has a problem, I've got to live with that guy every day. I, I might side with him if 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 I were in that position to make to make that choice. Did you know as a player who were Democrats and who were Republicans in the clubhouse? Did you talk enough politics to to know that? Yes. Uh, I mean, it, it was never as divisive as it is today, obviously, but yeah, you kind of knew. You 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 uh you spend so much time together. Yeah. There's nothing sacred in a major league clubhouse. You know just about everything about each other, and and certainly you can get surprised too. You you would be surprised that some of the some of the the ball players that are from the south, uh, you, you might be a little more liberal than you think at times, and then some of the guys from the northeast that I played with were more conservative than you you would have you would have thought based on demographics or where they're from. But for the most part, you can kind of sense uh, you know which side of the aisle you know, ball players uh, stand. 
So you're you're in New York. You're a Kansas City guy originally. Came up with the Royals, but you spent a good chunk of your career with the Mets, with the Yankees in New York through the '80s, through the '90s. Did you ever have any interaction with Donald Trump through that time? Yes, yes, a lot. He was at a lot of games, a lot of big games. There were so many World Series games. You know, the Yankees we won four out of five years. Yeah. So, so yes, he was always there. Uh, I actually. Uh, had met him even back in the '80s when I was with the Mets, uh, you know, out at charity events. There's a lot of charity events that we've crossed paths. So certainly, I've known him, I've met him, I've talked to him. Did you think? Did you know he was going to be president? Were no. you the one that figured that out? No, not <laughs> me, not at all. I, I was so surprised because he seemed to love his life so much the way yeah. it was. He loved golf. He loved being, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, you know a golf developer, a golf course. He loves playing golf. He loves interacting with stars. So I, I thought he loved his lifestyle too much to. To make the sacrifice to be to be the president, uh, I want to I want to turn to uh, the, the 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 changes that we've seen in uh, development around the game. And you talk about in the book, and you talk a lot on the air about analytics. You seem to have, to embrace a lot of the advanced statistics. I'm curious how you think you would have adjusted as a player had it been in place then, if there had been all these defensive shifts, if there was such a, a, an emphasis on statistics. I personally feel like. If a ball went through the second base hole while David Cohn was on the mound where the second baseman would have been because of the shift, you'd been pretty pissed off. You're right. <laughs> I probably would have. In, in the, you know, certainly in the heat of the battle, I, I'm, I'm a, it's easier to be more objective when you're in the broadcast booth and I'm 10 years or whatever, 20 years removed from throwing a perfect game. Um, but I think you have to educate yourself. If you don't like, you know, if it's going to be an old school, new school battle and you don't like, you're going to cast a pall on all of the new school analytics, you better educate yourself first. You know, you can't just dis- you can't just dismiss things without uh, trying to put it in perspective or gain a little bit of an understanding about it. And I've found in reading a lot of books, talking to a lot of sabermetricians, that there's a lot of common denominators. Uh, we used to talk about life on the fastball. Boy, Sid Fernandez was a left-handed pitcher with the Mets, and he threw maybe 90 miles an hour on the radar gun, but his ball just seemed to jump. We called it jackrabbit. He had mm-hmm. a jackrabbit in his fastball, and now we can measure that with spin rate with some of the new analytics and, and now you can you can see what you know you can trust but verify sort of thing you can what you see with your eyes you can go to you can go to the computer and say oh yeah that's it his spin rate is the reason why his fastball is jumping one thing i learned in reading full count or learned to new was really how much the the personal interactions even with umpires matter and you hinted this a bit in the book that the, the modern strike zone given the way that umpires are scrutinized is just different you knew as a pitcher you know, you you mentioned Tom Glavin starting to get that outside strike. You knew that you could start pounding it in the same spot in the zone. That a lot of that is kind of going away. Do you are you losing some of the human element in baseball when you put in not just advanced statistics but new technological devices? Obviously, the the idea of arguing arguing on calls is almost gone now because you've got so much replay. Some of these rules changes seem to be taking away some of the the human element. Yeah, that's a great point, especially, you know, when, when dealing with umpires. The umpires are the ones that have been under attack for so long. And a lot of people, the nostalgic look of the game, you miss Billy Martin throwing his hat at an yeah. umpire, kicking dirt on the umpire. You miss that confrontation. People really got into that. And, you know, all of the pressure has been taken off the umpires uh, except for the strike zone. And you kind of see that coming. You can almost see, you know, an umpire with an earpiece in the future and getting help technologically speaking uh, on you know, an electronic strike zone. You, can, you know, we see it in tennis on the on in and out and those type of calls. The technology is there. It's being perfected. And soon there, there will be uh, no reason to argue with an umpire at all. 
Yeah, and and you're seeing it lower level in the minors as well among the among the rules changes. They're just coming in with a, a lot of these new things. I want to talk. I wanted you to tell a little bit of the story of David Wells because I I love this. Um, obviously, you're always going to be linked in history with Wells through the championships and through the 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 perfect games and back to back no hitters. But um, I I hadn't remembered about the fight that you had with Wells. And a lot of this I don't think was out before you're, you're putting putting this in the book that you you confront him after he's ejected from a game, and then you end up developing a, a pretty close relationship with him. Yeah, it was pretty remarkable the turnaround. Uh, we had been together in 1992 with the Blue Jays for a brief period when the Mets traded me to the Blue Jays. David Wells was there, so we certainly knew each other. But when he came to the Yankees, he butted heads with Joe Torre right away. Um, just team rules, maybe. You know, Joe Torre just viewed him, at having not really gotten a chance to know him, as kind of selfish or aloof and not, re- you know, kind of a rebel. And Joe didn't like that. And, and so they were really clashing. And after that uh, sort of uh, altercation that we had in the clubhouse, uh, we went out that night, had a couple beers and talked it through. And and uh, he and Joe were ready to blast each other in the media. And uh, I encouraged David Wells to go behind closed doors, stay out of the media, yeah. have that blow up with Joe Torre. He did. They were screaming at each other in the clubhouse and in the manager's office. And when it was over, I went to Joe Torrey and I said, how'd that go? And Joe just looked at me with that stern look. And I said, look, I'll make you a deal. Let me have him. I'll take him. I'll keep him out of jail at night. You know, and, and, and I will uh, I'll work with him. I'll get him on track because we need him. He's a great pitcher. We need him to, to get where we want to go in the World Series. And about 10 days later, he threw a perfect game. And then we started venturing out and going out at night and then it turned into the kind of the opposite where he was watching me you know and and uh, we became very close and we ended up staying at different hotels on the road than the team hotel and and uh, we had some great parties and that was david just needed a friend boomer just needed a friend and he really thrived that year and that was 1998 and at the end of the year he was the best pitcher in the american league and we had 125 wins and one of the best teams of all time uh, fascinating story, and I I I love your your talk in the book. It, it, it reads it's a very it's a terrific read. Full count again with Jack Curry as well, and uh, it, it's instruction manual in some parts. It's kind of life lessons. I'm curious um, as we wind down here, uh, David Cohen. If do players come to you for advice these days? I mean, you have such amazing perspective given your life in the game. Do you have that relationship with them, or is it different now that you're in the broadcast booth and you've got a little bit, little bit of, a, of a remove from the clubhouse? Yeah, that's a great point. You know, that's the toughest part of a, being a broadcaster is you're on the other side of the fence. You know, and I was such an extreme players advocate for so many years, a player rep, American League rep for 10 years, and talked about all the work in Washington that I did during the strike and you know, I've, and then when, when I'm in the broadcast booth, if I said something critical about a player, I would go down to the clubhouse and I, they'd look at me sideways. And I was like, oh, man, this is what it's like being media. Yeah. You know, you're on the other side of the fence. And it, it, that's the toughest thing to learn in the broadcast booth is how to how to be credible and tell the truth, but also pay respect to the players about how hard it is to play that game, knowing having played it, that that's the case. And you can lose your perspective when you're in the booth about that as Oh, back when I played or the get off my lawn style of, of broadcasting that we see a lot is something I really try mm-hmm. to stay away from. Quarter of the way into the season, what's your what's your sense of this Yankees team winning a lot of games that uh, people aren't expecting given all these injuries, a lot of new kids coming up? It is remarkable. Uh, you got to give the, the Yankees organization credit for finding a lot of these diamond in the rough, so to, so to speak. Uh, some of it's luck, too. Some of it's small sample size. Yeah, They've been pretty fortunate to this point. There's a lot of baseball left to be played, but... The whole narrative has changed around the Yankees from the high expectations, the superstars. Should they have signed Harper or Machado? Uh, They brought in D.J. LeMahieu instead. He's been great. But 
who's Gio Urshela? Yeah. <laughs> and, oh, my God, we can't do without Gio Urshela. It's almost like within three weeks he went from who to we can't lose this guy. He's, he's a cold hero all of a sudden. So it's energized, re-energized the Yankee fan base and changed the whole narrative uh, for the time being. Long season. We'll see what happens. Things may catch up to him. All right. The book is Full Count, The Education of a Pitcher. David Cohn, thank you for being here. It's been my pleasure to, to have you here on Powerhouse Politics. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rick. We're going to take a quick break right here. When we come back, we're going to talk to a Red Sox legend, uh, the, the legendary pitcher, Louis Tiant, the author of a brand new book, Son of Havana. My ABC News colleague, George Sanchez, will join me. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. I'm joined here by my ABC News colleague, George Sanchez, and we are thrilled to welcome to the podcast Louis Tiant, the Red Sox legend, 19-year major leaguer, uh, one of the all-time greats and most colorful figures in the history of the game. Let's get right to it with Louis Tiant. I want to ask about your new book, Son of Havana, and it strikes me in reading it and reading about your history, the, the incredible story of your, of your journey. Uh, through your father's career in the Negro Leagues, through the, uh, the, the racism that you experienced throughout your career, uh, the time in Boston in the 1970s, the thawing of Cuban relations, and of course now things are moving a little bit in another direction. I'm curious, is Louis Tiant optimistic or pessimistic about the state of baseball and race relations this year in 2019? Well, you know, I'll I, I tell you one thing. Uh, what I go through... It really don't make any difference now. Today, I mean, it wasn't that time. Whenever it happened, my father go through, I go through. And race is still around. It's nothing new. I don't know what people surprise. People talking about it. But race is still there. I tell you, whatever I've been in this country, even in other countries, in my country, in other countries I've been, I see discrimination in people. You know, I think what I I mean to do myself was I'm going to live my life. I'm going to do what I had to do. Uh, the guy gave me the opportunity to come in a baseball player. He let the door open for me. You know, that don't mean I uh, I upset to the other African-American or Latin. It don't make no difference. You know, and I, I don't know how... I never teach my kid any races. I told him, my kid, you live your life, you live it, whatever you want to live. You do whatever you want to do. They learn you in the in, in the law. You'll be fine. You know, I, and that's what I try to do with my life. I've been doing all my life. I keep doing it till I'm going to die. And uh, I, I don't have a problem. I, mean, I, I don't like it what I see. And I don't think a lot of people don't like it what I see. But uh, it's still there. You see what happened now, all the problems they have yeah, and you never know what people think. We're all different. Everybody thinks different. Everybody have a different parents teaching the kid wrong in some ways, and uh, and that's the biggest problem. I see in there, you know. I mean, uh, like I say, I don't care what I say, no matter what you say, or no matter what anybody says. Racism is here. They're going to be here forever. They're never going to change. So people will hate each other, people that like each other, people jealous of each other, you know. Uh, and that's crazy. And the way you see before, when you was a kid, and the, and the town you grew up in, my country, you play with your friend, you know who it is, you go to school together, 
we're doing everything together. Now, it's different. It had to pick in a, a, a good friend because uh, the computer, the phone, people like, like me, I go around and meet people, but I don't know who the people are. I don't know if they really like me or not. Man, I, I don't call them my friend. I'm going to call them my friend if somebody I've been friend for 30, 40 years, and I know what he do. I know the way he behaves, the way I behave, how we come and buy things. Uh, I don't know. Life in this in this part is uh, difficult to choose people because you really you know you got a lot of surprise. I know I have a lot of surprise. Uh, you see people you think that they're your friend, they're not. You see, and uh, that's what I just talking about. You have to be careful. You you have to know who you're going to choose for a friend. And like I said, I don't hate nobody. I don't care what anybody do. I want to do what I like to do. You know, I, I, and I know telling people to like me. If people want to like me, hey, beautiful. I, I don't like everybody. I don't like to be out with everybody. I don't like to be around with everybody. So I respect everybody. Yeah. I know they respect nobody. I don't pull, I don't pull their name. I don't point the finger and people and do tell them best things. I know you do what you want. And I'm going to do what I want. Uh, as long as I've been like that, I'll be fine. Uh, Mr. Tion, did you ever, mm-hmm. in, um, did you encounter racism growing up in Cuba or was it, how was it different when you were growing up in, in terms of race relations in Cuba than coming to the United States, in particular your, your time in Boston? No, it was, it was racism in my country. Discrimination. You can go to the club, a private club, they don't let you go in there. A lot of, uh, what do you call it, places where they have a party by house and they got a club. They're not letting us in there. You know, and then when I come into Boston, you know, uh, the time I come in here, people have been good to me. I know I'm coming in the time. In 75, before uh, they have the problem about the buses. You know, the people fire in the street and they don't want to keep going to the bus with the other kids. Oh, a lot of problems, you know, but the thing, uh, that's what I'm trying to tell you. I don't understand it sometimes. And don't hear, they know what too many African Americans in the ballpark, know what too many Latinos in the ballpark. 95% or maybe more of the fan was white, okay, mm-hmm. American. Uh, and then, you know, there's five in the street, this and that, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do that. And then when I go in the mound, everybody got me, everybody called my name, everybody pulled up for me to win. You know, and then yeah. when I finish the game and you go outside, you see the, the people fight, the people doing all kinds of things. And then, uh, and I don't never understand that part. You know? yeah, <laughs> right? Why they fight and then they, they wanted me to to win. Yeah. Uh, and the thing is, you know, that's why I stay here. I know some people that they, they like you, whatever reason they have. I don't. Know. But my countrymen, you know, people I know, they tell me, why what are you living in Boston for? You crazy? You cold? <laughs> Where you want me to live in Miami? <laughs> I'm, I'm well, over there, maybe be hungry. Here, at least I have a job. 
people show me respect, people show me love. You know, uh, uh, I, I don't get that anywhere. Yeah. In the place I've been so far in this world, okay? Yeah. Uh, one, one thing go with the other. And, and you go and you be, and I want to be whatever people I know like me. See, I don't want to be in places people don't like me. Yeah, I don't think anybody do it or like that. But that's what I say. I, I, I have problems with people. I see problems with different people, races and stuff. But uh, it's a race everywhere I go. I mean, every place I've been to today, I see races. Yeah. You know? and, uh, but uh, I don't want to stop me. You know, they didn't stop me before in the minor league when I had to go through all the stuff I had to go through. Yeah, you know, I just go, like I said, God give me that uh, power, as you want to call it, to don't fray anything. Just do what you want to do. And uh, I'm trying to fulfill my dream when I was a kid. I want to get to the big league. And I come into this country to play baseball. I don't come into this country to see who like me or not. You know, uh, I, 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 like I say, I don't come here to fight. I come to do my thing. And thank you, God, they give me the chance to do that. You yeah. know, because uh, I never told when I come from Cuba here, whatever, uh, I'm never going to do what I do. You know, God been great to me. They still good to me. I appreciate it like yeah. for him for everything they give me. You know, well, I know I don't complain. Yeah, I, you know, in Boston, that's you know, you you started your career in Cleveland, and you had some mm-hmm. good years, to, good years there. Uh, even though the team wasn't very good, but when you came to Boston, you were coming off some injuries, and yep. you, you experienced a bit of a rebirth there uh, when you yep. when you came to yep. Boston. How did you approach yep. your change? Uh, did you? How did you approach your? Was there a new way of approaching? The way you pitched, or I mean, how did it change yeah. in terms of uh, you kind of found yeah, your well, found your groove they, again they, on the mound? The way I was pitching, excuse me, you know, I used to throw ninety eight, ninety nine, sometimes even hundred when I, when I was in Cleveland, you know. And then when I, I hurt my eye, got my you know my shoulder cracking my shoulder, uh, my face bone don't work the same. I, I wait, it may take me like a year and a half to mm-hmm. recuperate. Yeah. Then in Minnesota, I go to Venezuela in 19, that's what happened in 1970. Then I go there and come back. And then in the sprint running, the last day they released me. And that's when I, I go down to Richmond, triple A, belong to Atlanta. For one month, I got a contract. They don't call me up. I wanted my release again. And then the day I supposed to pitch, I supposed to pitch again, uh, what, what do you call it now? Uh, what they do, the, the Louis, and Louisville, they belong to the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. Okay, it was a three play for the Red Sox. And we're supposed to play there that night. That's the day there was a month on my contract. Then I remember Clark King was the manager for us. And he told me, I, I'm not going to pitch him today, but I want you to stay with us. Let me call him. Uh, let me call him Atlanta. Uh, you know, uh, I want you to stay with me. 
And they said, okay, I'll give you to tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock. But I already was talking to the, the Louisville, you know, Devin Johnson and Lee Stanton. Lee Stanton was the pitching coach, and I, and I used to pitch with him. Uh, you know, I told him, I'll give you to tomorrow, 9 o'clock. And tomorrow, 9 o'clock, you know, be on the lobby, have a breakfast, and telling me what's going on, I'm going to go. Now, he never told by taking a taxi and go to Mopac and sign it. You know, then I, well, I stayed there about 20 days. And he played with Richmond. And then Sullivan coming down, see me, and I throw a chair out and double-headed. And they, then they bring me back up. And then when I come here in 71, you know, they, were, they put me. They put me in the bullpen. I know it was a bullpen pitching. Mm-hmm. It was difficult for me. You know? And I, I, I minded myself, you know. I, I said, in 1972, Eddie Casco, the manager was in 71 when I came. <coughs> he wanted me to stay. And I guess he took the thing. They killed me. In 72, and I remember Sonny Silver. Were pitching for us. He's supposed to pitch in that night, and he gets sick. Then Eddie told me, "Are you ready to pitch?" I said, I've been ready all my life. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Okay." He said, "Okay, you pitching tonight?" I go out. Plus, I was pitching against Cleveland too. You know, and then I go and, and you know, I, I do my thing, and, uh, and you know, during the hammock, I was. Uh, my control was bad. Mm-hmm. But then w- I remember in the, in the, in the seven inning, uh, I have it here in two strikes no more. And then coming to my mind, uh, let me do this. And that's when I come out and look in the center field, look in the sky, and then throw the side out. And the guy see the guy in the home plate, open the eyes, he's moving away from the home plate. I asked Captain Fisk, what is that? He said, no, this is a new pitch. <laughs> so, oh, no, no, please, no, no, no. And then from that point on, that's when I came my delivery. Uh-huh. And that pitch, you know, I said, hey, I work. It looks like it work. Then I start doing it, I start practicing, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and that's where I come in. You know, well, what do you want to call it? A master, whatever. Because nobody does, they can't deliver. And I can throw a strike, I can do what I need to do, but I, I, I practice. It made me a, a better pitcher. I went well, 172 games after that. Yeah, it really worked for me. That's and terrific. That's where I changed my delivery, you know, uh-huh. because my first ball no what he's saying when I was in Cleveland in 68, I used to throw, I'm 100. Yeah. Then I had to come out with something different. And when what I did with that kind of delivery, I hide the ball better from the hitter. You know, and they give me the edge in that way. When they go see the ball, it's too late. Uh, I started working, and my control was better. Yeah, and, uh, and I was the kind of pitcher, you know, I go pitcher. I don't fear nobody. Mm-hmm. I want to go over there and win. I want to beat you, you give me a chance. And I remember I used to tell him the hitter when I come in from the bullpen, give me one today. And I go over there and throw it out. 
Wow. Someday I called me and I told her, give me five. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about today, but I, I'm still winning, you know. And that's why we sit down now and we laugh, you know, Jim Wright, guys. We used to talking about, you know. But it was fun. The game was fun for me. I love the game. This is, I mean, I born again, I play baseball again. And I pitch maybe. Because I love pitch, you know. I think like a quarterback in football. Uh-huh. You control the game. You yes. know, you control the game. Yeah. And you get some bad days, and you have some good days. Yeah. But uh, that's what the game is. And uh, you have to get the best out of the game. And that's what I did. Thank you, God. They gave me that opportunity. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, the 1975 World Series when the Red Sox were facing mm-hmm. the Cincinnati Reds. And you threw a shutout against the Big Red Machine, which was uh, no easy mm-hmm. task. And I know your yes. parents were in the stands watching yes. you. Did your dad give you any pregame advice on how to attack such a great lineup? No, no, no. He don't give me any. You know, he don't bother me. You know, you know what's funny? That's the first time he seen me pitch. Right. You know, well, the second time when he come in, because he come in before he was there. And when he come in, I think about three days after he come in, I pitched in the gang Anaheim. And uh, he was in the game. Uh, that's why he threw his first pitch and everything in the game. And I lose in that game. And that's what it was the first time he seen me pitch. All over, even Cuba and here. You know. And uh, he, don't, he don't really bother me in anything. You know? Like I say, he don't want me to play baseball. He want me to go to school. Even they sent me to English school in Cuba to to learn English. I, I don't know what's the idea. But he don't want me to play. Wow. But he wanted me to go to school. And then my I, I was selected to go to Mexico for the juvenile watch service. Uh, he don't want me to go. He told my mother, no, he wanna go and I'm because of my mother that's what I go. Because she told her, you look that thing don't happen all the time. He then pick his hand to go there and let it go. And he finally, in the end, he said, okay, go ahead. And he let me go. But uh, he don't want me to play baseball. I, I, and I can figure out, okay, why he, he played 25 years in Hebrew League. You know, now he don't want me to play baseball. You know, you figure out when you're a kid, when, what happened? What's the matter with him? Then when I come in here, and I come in to the South, Charleston, West Virginia, Burlington, North Carolina. That's where my first two things I played. Then I figured out why he don't want me to come in, you know, to play baseball. And, uh, and it was tough. So I said, oh, now I figured out. So before that, I don't figure out. But I know why. I, 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 and I know what he go through. And he's like what he played. And I like this guy. He never told me anything about race, never said, they never said anything about sit down with me and talk to me about what, what, what he's what, what he going through. But <clears throat> when I play winnable, the players used to play with him. They used to tell me, you know, they say, you're you good. So your father was good at you. <laughs> I said, oh, that's good, that's good, that's good. You know, make you feel good. But they the one that told me all these things that was going on. And, uh, 
And I think there's one of the reasons he don't want me to to play. Yeah. And then when, when he called me, you know, he was happy. He he told me, you know, no, I've never been treated like this in my life. You know, the way the people treated him, they wanted the autograph. Even when he go to a bathroom, people ask for the autograph. <laughs> and he laughed. He, he having fun. He, he well, enjoyed me. He wanted to stay with me for with my with family, among a year and a half, year fifteen months. Then he died, and then my mother died a day and a half after. Oh wow! You know, and I buried. I had to bury him both for them on the same day. Uh, you know, it was a, a pleasant time for me. Uh, I was the only child. I had no brother, I had no sister. Uh, but at least, uh, I, I thank God every day, you know. They let me see. I bring him in here. They see me preach. Uh, we provide, my wife and me provide a, a great time yeah. when they was here for 15 months, yeah. What's well, that? A, a, a special moment, and I, I, I'd speak on behalf of the the two Yankee fans who have the pleasure of interviewing you right now. That we're glad you didn't take your yeah. father's advice, and <laughs> and you went on to play baseball. Uh, Louis Tiant, the book is "Son of Havana." Thank you so much for joining mm-hmm. us. We appreciate you being with us okay. here on Powerhouse Politics. Thank you, sir. Okay, my friend. All Thank right. You. Okay. Thank you for the opportunity. And that does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics, this special Memorial Day baseball and politics edition. I want to thank the whole team here, George Sanchez, for helping out with the questioning of Louis Tiant, Eric Malo for some help on the bookings, Trevor Hastings, our man behind the controls, Avery Miller and Angie Yak. Thanks to all. We'll see you next time.